Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens, and it is great to be with you tonight. We've got an awesome show tonight. In a moment, we'll be speaking with Ralph Reed, director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And later, we'll be talking with United States Marine, deputy sheriff, and veteran of the Battle of Benghazi, Mark Osgeist. Well, folks, tomorrow, as you all know, is Election Day. And across America for many months now, many people of faith have felt under attack. Faith was deemed non-essential by many politicians. And in large parts of the country, casinos, marijuana shops, and liquor stores could remain open while churches were forced to close. People who wanted to attend church were threatened with being arrested and fined. In my home state of Missouri in St. Louis earlier this year, you had elderly people praying at the statue of King Louis IX the former king of France and the city's namesake, and they were beaten by protesters. More recently in Washington, D.C., Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. And you'll remember this quotation from California Senator Dianne Feinstein when Justice Barrett was first appointed by President Trump to be an appeals judge. Do you consider yourself an Orthodox Catholic? I am a Catholic, Senator Durbin. The dogma lives loudly within you, and that's of concern. And here's a clip from the confirmation hearing just a couple weeks ago, and this time it wasn't meant to be heard by the public. It was caught by a hot mic. Take a listen. She's been pro-life for a long time. That was Senator Feinstein talking about Amy Coney Barrett's pro-life position and how it was, quote, deeply personal and comes with her religion, end quote. Now, Senator Feinstein voted against Justice Barrett. In fact, Barrett only received 52 votes in her confirmation, compared to Justice Ginsburg, you may remember, who received 96. Well, there's an election in less than 24 hours, and people of faith are going to have a big voice in deciding the results. And here to talk with us about the election, about religious freedom in America, is Dr. Ralph Reed. Uh, Ralph is the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and author of a new book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. Ralph has been out campaigning for the president in the weeks running up to tomorrow's election. Ralph's a personal friend, and we're glad to have him on. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. You bet, man. So look, the election's tomorrow, and the first thing I want to do is ask you about a tweet you made last night about evangelical voters in Iowa. 
You said that Trump leads Biden among self-identified evangelicals in Iowa, 72 to 20%. You pointed out that that's a 52-point margin, according to a new Des Moines Register poll. And it's a big reason why Trump now leads Biden 48 to 41% in Iowa. So what's, what's happening in Iowa? I think what's happening in Iowa is pretty consistent with what we're seeing in every battleground state, Eric. Mm. Um, and by the way, that way, that margin in Iowa in the Des Moines Register poll, which is the gold standard in the Hawkeye state, uh, is identical uh, to the same margin four years ago, the same weekend before the election mm. by the same poll. They had Trump ahead by seven. He ended up winning the state by roughly nine and a half. Wow. Uh, wow. In North Carolina recently, I believe uh, this was an ABC News Washington Post poll. There was a poll in North Carolina that had Trump leading the evangelical vote 82 to 17. Uh, he won 81 percent of the evangelical vote mm. nationally. In Georgia, if you can believe it, he won it by an astonishing 92 percent. And I think that if you look at most of these states, the self-identified born-again evangelicals are about 25, 6, 7 percent of the electorate. Uh, faithful Roman Catholics who frequently mm. attend Mass, uh, think of Amy Coney Barrett, mm. uh, they're about another 9 or 10 percent of the electorate. So between the faithful Mass-attending Catholics Mm. And mm. the born again evangelicals, it's 37% of the electorate. And he's going to win 80% of that vote. And it's a big reason why I think he's going to win uh, tomorrow night. Right, right. Now, Ralph, you've, you've been, been making the case for the president. In fact, you've got a new book out, uh, Forgotten Country, uh, The Christian Case for, yep. for Trump. Just, you know, tell, tell the audience what is uh, the Christian case for Trump that you make, that you make in the book? Well, I wrote the book uh, not so much as a defense of the president, mm. although I do plenty of that, and probably so. I wrote it primarily as a defense of the faith community and of the tens of millions of God-fearing, um, patriotic, uh, Bible-believing Christians whose only crime has been to take their citizenship seriously and to seek to advance what they believe is the common moral good. And when they were confronted with Donald Trump four years ago, let's be clear, he was not their first choice. Two-thirds of them voted for someone else in the Republican primaries, right. Right. either Ted Cruz or somebody else. But by the time you got down to the binary choice facing them in November of 2016, with a vacancy on the Supreme Court that would decide the ideological balance of the court, and with Donald Trump having been the first presidential candidate. Think about this for a minute. Mm -hmm. The first presidential candidate in American history to release a list of 21 names of respected conservative and originalist jurists and say, I'm going to fill this vacancy from that list. Right. And so on the issue of life, religious freedom, judges who would respect the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, support for Israel, opposition to the Iran nuclear deal, which empowered and provided hundreds of billions of dollars to the leading state sponsor of terrorism, they felt it was a moral choice, and they felt that Hillary and now Joe Biden advanced grave moral evils 
like abortion on demand paid for with our tax dollars. And they believe Donald Trump is advancing things that are the common good. Now, that doesn't mean they think that Donald Trump is perfect. It doesn't mean they agree with every one of his tweets or everything he says. But on these transcendent matters mm. that they believe are matters of good and evil, that Joe Biden is advancing grave moral evils. And for them, this has not been a difficult call, given that reality. Right. And, and Ralph, put, put, this, um, you know, put this election and put this presidency in some historical uh, context, if you would. I mean, you're, you're a student of history. I know that's what you, you did your PhD in. You and I have talked about, about American history a little bit. Talk about mm -hmm. President Trump's presidency in the context of religious freedom over American history. How do you rank him compared to other presidents? And what are the most important victories uh, and he's achieved and challenges that he's faced? Well, I think he he's a remarkable historical figure. You know, again, it's easy to forget when you're living history that you're part of history. Mm. And, you know, when you think about it, from the time that America was founded 200 and, you know, 45 some odd years ago uh, until today, from the time we declared our independence until today, we've never had anybody elected president who had not either held elective office, Senate, Congress, vice president, governor, uh, or held high appointive office, like a cabinet officer, or been a war hero, like mm. Ulysses S. Grant or Dwight D. Eisenhower or Andrew Jackson. This is the first person in American history who, who was not a politician, wasn't a military or a war hero. I might have you have you hold that thought for a moment because we're gonna go we're gonna go to a break. And folks, when we come back, I want Ralph to, to finish this thought about President Trump's uh, place in American history as a champion for religious freedom. And we're also gonna talk about Israel and religious freedom in this coronavirus environment. Stay right with us. We'll be back with Ralph Reed. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens, and now we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Ralph Reed, chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Ralph, you're talking about uh, President Trump's unique place in, in American history. Please con continue your thought. Well, he's a remarkable historical figure, as I was saying. You know, having never run for a total elective office, uh, not uh, a war hero who was elected on his military credentials, and a disruptor. An outsider, um, you know. I'm I'm very reticent to make historical comparisons. Every era, every time, has dynamics and a, a uniqueness. It's that's all its own. Um, but I certainly think in my lifetime, uh, Ronald Reagan is that kind of similar outsider figure. In the 19th century, that would have been Andrew Jackson. Mm. Um, but uh, the other thing that's remarkable about Trump, I think, 
is here's somebody who was from Manhattan. He was a billionaire. Uh, he'd been married three times. Uh, he had he had he had led a a sort of a tabloid life. Had been tabloid fodder for most of his life, and yet he ended up. Uh, doing more to both energize and to act as a champion for the faith community of probably any president we've had since the modern religious conservative movement broke upon the beaches of our political system mm. 40 years ago. It's an amazing, either God's got a great sense of humor uh, or we're very fortunate or both. Right, and Ralph, talk a little bit about, you know, at, at this particular moment, Right. When we kind of zoom in on this year, 2020 has seen tremendous restrictions on churches, on people's ability to exercise uh, their faith, even to even to attend church. Um, we've yeah. seen in, in some states people being threatened with arrest if they go to church. We've had singing outlawed in some churches. Talk, if you would, about how you think these coronavirus restrictions, which a lot of people feel like have been unfairly targeted uh, against people of faith are shaping this moment and potentially impacting the way people are going to vote here uh, tomorrow? Well, I think that, um, you know, look, everybody wants to abide by and wants to respect appropriate and advisable public health protocols. Right. But what is very disturbing to me is, you know, you have places like we did an evangelical for Trump event. I think it was in August in Las Vegas. And you could not have more than 10 or 20 people gather in a church in the state of Nevada, but a casino could operate at 50% capacity. So we were basically forbidden to have effectively any kind of gathering in a church. So you know what we did, Eric? Hmm. We rented a casino. <laughs> and so we had the evangelical event in a casino ballroom. Right. And uh, that that's what we've been uh, reduced to in many ways. I'm very fortunate. I live in the state of Georgia. My governor, Brian Kemp, who's a terrific guy and a very capable leader, he never ordered churches closed in the state of Georgia, right. ever. Now, many of them closed for a period of time. They're now gradually opening. But I, the other thing that I am grateful to this administration for is the Justice Department under Attorney General Bill Farr went into federal court to defend the right of churches to meet if they felt like many of these restrictions were being applied in a way that was uneven, unequal, and unfairly targeted faith, and I definitely think some of them did. Well, speaking of speaking of unique and unexpected things, I mean, certainly uh, you and the crew renting at renting a casino was was unique and, and unexpected. I mean, one of one of the other one of the other big issues that I know you've you've cared about and been an advocate for uh, for a long time is is American support for the state of Israel, and I think yeah. one of the things that that has been unexpected was President Trump's you know tremendous success in advancing that relationship. You know, very early on, moving the embassy 
seat to Jerusalem. It was something that administration yep. after administration had promised and yet failed to deliver on. And then more recently, the, these peace deals um, and the recognition of, of Israel and the normalization of relations with Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates, and then just most recently uh, with Sudan. Give us, give us a sense. You've been working on this uh, issue for decades now. Give us a sense yep. for the importance of President Trump's leadership on the particular issue of Israel. Well, I, I think it shows the importance of leadership, you know, and um, Donald Trump was someone who, because he wasn't part of the foreign policy establishment, because he was an outsider, because he wasn't a career uh, politician, he really approached a lot of these ideas with a fresh set of eyes. And basically what the president, uh, along with uh, Jared Kushner and David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, former attorney to the president, uh, decided to do was they said, look, administrations for decades have approached the peace process and po U.S. policy in the Middle East with a particular set of facts and assumptions. And it hasn't really necessarily gotten us anywhere. It hasn't gotten us any closer to peace. Um, and why don't we take a little bit of a different approach? And they did. And it was unapologetically pro-Israel. But there was bold and robust outreach, uh, not just to the Palestinian Authority, but to the Arab world to give them an opportunity to see a vision of a better region and a better world free from deprivation, poverty, ethnic conflict, bloodshed, and, uh, and a lack of economic growth. And, you know, when I know that when the president, because he told me this in a conversation we had in the Oval Office. He said, when I decided that I was going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, he pointed to the phone on the desk, the Resolute desk, and he said, that phone right there rang off the hook with world leaders from all over the globe calling me and telling me if I did this, that peace would be set back decades. There would be a third intifada that, you know, that the Middle East would be drenched in bloodshed and civil war. And he said, and I didn't take any of their calls. <laughs> He said, I didn't take one of their calls. He said, so then they started calling H.R. McMaster and they started calling President Pence. But, but what was interesting was we made that decision with the exception of one rent in Gaza. Uh, there wasn't the kind of civil unrest or bloodshed that people predicted. And, and let me tell you why, Eric. The reason why is because by saying that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel and was going to remain so, Number one, we recognize the facts on the ground that the Israeli people are never going to surrender Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. It's been their capital for 3,000 years, thank you very much. Secondly, it helped to delicately calibrate and make more realistic the expectations and the aspirations of the Palestinians in the Arab world. If you get them to understand, you're not going to be able to drive the Israelis into the sea, you're not going to be able to take over Jerusalem, then maybe you can start talking about things that are doable, like trade, like economic prosperity, like economic aid, like mutual security arrangements. And that's exactly what's happened. And it's another example of why the American people in 2016 voted for an outsider, voted for a disruptor, and voted for somebody who was anti-establishment because they wanted a fresh set of eyes and they wanted a different approach. And sometimes, you know, maybe it takes some of these intractable foreign policy 
uh, disputes. Maybe it takes, you know, the rough and tumble deal making of a of a Manhattan real estate and hotel developer to well, figure out how to try a different approach. Well, it's, it certainly it certainly has here. And, and you're right. It, it wasn't also just world leaders. It was also like a lot of the Republican foreign policy establishment was actually oh, opposed yeah. the president on this. But but he acted he acted very boldly. We've just got 15 uh, seconds left uh, here, Ralph. You've got over two million members with the Faith and Freedom Coalition. On Wednesday and Thursday, what are people going to be saying about how people of faith turned out to vote tomorrow? I think they're going to talk about the largest and most historic turnout of voters of faith in American history. And I think they're going to be just as surprised on a lot of television sets in New York and Washington as they were four years ago. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us, folks. That's Dr. Ralph Reed at the Faith and Freedom uh, Coalition. Always a pleasure to, to have him on. Stay with us. We're going to be back with Mark Osgeist. He is a United States Marine, and you know him as a veteran of the Battle of Benghazi. It's a fascinating conversation. Stay right with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. As you know, every day, there are men and women stationed around the world who are on guard and who serve all of us. They've sworn to protect our country with their lives if need be. And every once in a while, there's a story that needs to be shared. And my next guest has an incredible story. Mark Osgeist has served our country as a United States Marine, as a police officer, as a private contractor. During that time, he's been stationed in the Philippines, in Iraq, and also, perhaps most famously, in Benghazi, Libya. He helped to write the book 13 Hours, an inside account of what really happened in Benghazi. He joins us now to share his story. Oz, thanks so much uh, for joining us, man. We're, we're honored to have you on. Eric, thanks for having me. You bet, man. Let, let's start with your time in, in Benghazi, right? And the now famous day of September 11th, 2012. Mark, you were credited with saving 25 lives. Uh, tell us about that night, please. Um, you know, it's uh, it couldn't have happened without the guys that were there with me. I mean, Ty and Glenn, uh, Tig, Tonto, DB, and Jack. You know, unfortunately. Um, Glenn, he only got a, he showed up at the very end of it, but, uh, you know, things started around nine. Well, for me, it started about six o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I was out in town working, uh, me and a female case officer, uh, I call, we had to go out on a dinner date. And, uh, when I was out there, it was about nine 30 when I got a call from Ty and Ty just said over my cell phone said, Hey, you need to get back to the annex, stay away from the consulate. And so I gathered up female case officer, got her in the vehicle, and uh, we started heading back. And once I got in the vehicle, you know, we turned on our secure comms and was able to find out and hear more about what was going on. And, you know, you could hear the gunfire. You could hear the explosions over the radio. Um, 
when the State Department personnel were talking to uh, Ty and them back at uh, the annex and, you know, uh, Ty and them initially went up and told Bob, you know, hey, we're ready to go. We're going to head out. And he told them to wait and stand down. And, you know, that first one, as you know, you know, you can kind of understand that the chief of base is trying to get the uh, lay of the land and trying to mm. develop uh, some of his assets into finding out what's going on. Um, unfortunately, he just failed to use us in a way that, uh, at least in my opinion, that could have been a whole lot better and getting eyes and, you know, getting us on target, getting our eyes on target so he can get actionable intel from actual operators instead mm -hmm. of from third country nationals. Right. And, and, and that night, um, you know, kind of walk us through what, 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 ha what happened then. A lot of folks have seen the movie. A lot of folks have, have, have read the book. But for, for members of our audience who haven't, who kind of remember how important this moment was but haven't experienced it themselves or had a chance to, to see the movie or, or read the book, kind of walk them through what, what happened that night and, and the heroism of some of the, the men you were serving with. Well, you know, Ty took the team over, uh, and they got over within probably 10 minutes. I mean, it was about a mile as a crow flies. They were they could get about 300 yards from the facility uh, at an intersection of what we called Consulate Road and Gunfighter. And Tonto and DB moved to some high positions so they could get um, eyes on target, possibly mm. provide cover fire, while the other three moved down through... Uh, consulate road and entered through the front gate of the consulate and when they did basically they encountered about 40 armed insurgents ambassadors residence was on fire the uh the guard shack that was to the uh, right of the uh, entrance was on fire and um you know like as you've probably seen most of the guys don't wear a uniform so it's uh it's then taking taking action on those that are going to be taking action on you and Luckily, uh, through violence, surprise, and superior firepower, the guys were able to uh, push off 40 armed insurgents and uh, push them back in either into the shadows or off the compound, which allowed everyone to start searching for the ambassador and Sean Smith mm -hmm. and get the uh, State Department guys out of their, uh, their uh, rooms where they were kind of held up. Yeah, and, and talk, talk with us a little bit, Oz. You, you really had to fight to get the truth out about this story. I mean, you've, you've said many times, for you, this was a story about the sacrifice, the courage, and the heroism of the people you were serving with. Um, but a lot of politicians really tried to hijack that story. Talk a little bit about what you had to do to make sure that the truth got out about Benghazi. When, you know, when we uh, first got back, uh, we got approached by about writing a book. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really something that we were keen on until we saw the development of the hijacking of the story. I mean, um, the the lies and the inconsistencies that were being told. And the only way this story was going to be told right was by us. And, and to honor the ambassadors, Sean Smith, Ty, and Glenn, for the sacrifice that they made for this country, um, it just had to be told. And so us as a group came together as our team and decided to write that. And through, you know, a very great writer that we hired to help us with that. And, uh, you know, the publishing house. And again, when it got made into a movie by Michael Bayev, you couldn't ask for a better guy that, that uh, loves the Navy SEAL community to, uh, to make this movie. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people ask, you know, how close was it? Well, 
It was it was pretty darn close, probably about 70, 80%. I mean, yeah. Michael made sure he kept it that way, but he also had to, uh, it's entertainment, so he had to add a little bit to it. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, um, I, I always appreciate, you do such a good job of, of keeping the memory of, of Ty Woods alive. For our viewers who don't remember, Ty Woods was, was a Navy SEAL, uh, served there with Oz in Benghazi. Um, he also happened to be one of my instructors going through SEAL qualification training. Uh, absolutely uh, incredible guy. And, and Oz, we're so grateful to you for keeping uh, the memories of these, of these heroes alive. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening today in the country about Oz's service as a police officer and what's next uh, for American service members. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens, and we're joined by Mark Osgeist, veteran of the Battle of Benghazi. Oz, you know, before we left, we were talking a little bit about the about the battle. Uh, the story in the 13 Hours book that you tell and the movie continue to do exceptionally well. And, and this was this was a battle that was eight years ago. Why do you think that people who continue to be interested in the book, in the movie, and in this story about you and the the battle that you guys that you guys went through? You know, I think. Uh really the movie and, and the book is representative about all of our military and our private security mm. contractors and what they do around the world. You know, we have 200 and roughly 274 diplomatic facilities around the world. And at every one of them, we have civilians that are working for the U.S. government. We have Navy, Air Force, Marines, private contractors that are all there to, to help protect and work together as a team to uh, represent this country. And, you know, we don't hear about that side of things a lot, especially mm -hmm. in the last, you know, 20 years, we've heard a lot about the battles in Afghanistan and Iraq, but right. you don't, all the other things out there, you don't hear about those. And I think this is a way to represent them and to honor all that sacrifice that's been made by so many people that uh, kind of work in the shadows. Yeah, you bet, man. And, and Oz, let me, let me ask you to kind of, uh, you know, put on put on a different perspective for a minute. Obviously, you've served as a United States Marine. You've served as a private military contractor. You've also served as a police officer. You were you were a deputy sheriff, and if I remember right, you were even a chief of police at, at one point. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Now you you look at what's happened to police over the course of this past summer in the country, and there's been this tremendous attack on police. There's a real war that the left has been launching against the police. We did a, a special right here called Blue Courage had tremendous response all over the country. It was just a real testament to the fact that the silent majority of Americans are out there supporting their police officers. As a guy who served and led on the front lines as a police officer, talk with you with our audience, if you would, a little bit about what you think the support is that our officers need to have right now. Well, they need to know that the public's supporting them. I yeah. mean, you know, most people 
around the world, in, in United States, very seldom, if ever in their life, will have contact with law enforcement, unless right. maybe a speeding ticket or something like that. I mean, because unfortunately, as law enforcement, I mean, we don't get called unless something bad has happened. And that's why you call 911. And that's what, you know, people don't like it when they have to do that because it's usually a bad situation. Right. And I just like to remind people that, um, you know, our law enforcement on a daily basis, what they face, you know, they come on shift and they're taking care of calls that have been left over from before because there's not enough manpower and not enough time in the day to get to each one. You're, you know, there's days where you're picking up somebody's family member off the road that got into a car wreck or a child that had gotten beaten or molested, you know, and and this is what they face every day and they have to do it with a smile on their face. And then when they go home after a 10 hour shift or 12 hour shift, then they have to deal with their family and they have to leave all that behind. And, you know, our military is in is in confrontation a lot over the last 20 years. But our, our law enforcement officers are in it every day to some degree or another. They are facing some of the worst parts of humanity because, and it's not the people, it's the situations that come from it, whether it be, you know, the drug deals, the overdoses, the car wrecks, the molestations, the murders, all of the, the suicides. I mean, they're the first ones that we call and for these people out there to sit there and say that they don't want them, they want to debate, you know, defund them or send out a psychologist, according to Joe Biden. You know, hey, we need psychologists to go out there and deal with this. Uh, hey, you go hire a psychologist and see how much you're going to have to pay for pay them to, and how long they'll stay on the job to do what cops do every day. Yeah, well, it's it's the police officers are out there serving every day, and and you've always done done a great job too of of giving attention and and you know recognizing the sacrifice that their families make, just like military service members, uh, you know, who always have families back home who, who are support, supporting them. Uh, we do. We've got frontline police officers and people in the U.S. military who are out there serving uh, every day. You know, Oz, one of the things that you've also talked about is how when you guys were out there, uh, you made a decision that you were going to do what was necessary to save somebody else's life. And that everybody came together and you were going to put the country first. What, you know, everybody knows who served. Like, you might have dif difficulties, disagreements among, among guys who, who, are, who are serving together. But you always put the mission first. You put the country first. What do we need to do to bring that same kind of ethic uh, back home where people can find ways to come together and put the country first? Well, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we can't hate. Because the one thing, you know, early on somebody asked me, do you hate the people that were trying to kill you? And just immediately it out of my mouth. I'm like, no, why? Why would I hate them? You know, and, and that's the same thing here. I mean, one is we, you know, the Lord commands us to love others as he loves us. It doesn't matter if they're enemy or friendly. And I think I take that same thing to the battlefield, both in and for here in this country. We need to start loving each other and understanding, yeah, we're all different. We all have problems. And my problem's the biggest one. But really, it's not because what's bigger is this country mm -hmm. and where we came from and everything that we've come through and where we are heading. Um, and if we don't open that up and we don't open up our hearts to one another, I think it's going to be it's going to be the demise or at least it's going to be some struggles that we're going to have in this country because uh, we can't allow the hate to lead our lives. Right. 
You know, one of the things that I also appreciate so much about what you've always done, Oz, is that you've always you've always reached out to folks with a hopeful message. Um, and I, I've said a lot of times, if you want to be hopeful, you know, go to go to Marine Corps uh, boot camp, right? If you want to be hopeful, go on the deck of an aircraft carrier. See what this next generation of young men and women are doing. Uh, in the last 20 seconds that we've that we've got left, Oz, uh, leave, leave our audience with some some words of, of hope about the men and women who are out there serving every day. You know, as you as you know as well as I do, when you go to boot camp, um, race, socioeconomic status, right. all of that thing is set aside because right. now you are a team. And, and that's why they do the things that they do in the military, in Marine Corps boot camp, in Navy boot camp, in BUDS. It's, you soon to realize that each and every one of you are exactly the same on the inside and that you're putting that country first. You're putting the service to this country because that's really what draws us to um, to do what we do is to be part of a family and to be part of something where we can serve something greater than us. Well, Mark, you've, you've certainly done that uh, in your life. Folks, again, the book is 13 Hours. Uh, check out Mark Geist on the web or watch, watch the movie. It's an incredibly powerful story. And Mark, we appreciate your service to this country uh, as a United States Marine. We appreciate your service as a police officer, as a private military contractor. We appreciate you. Stay with us, folks. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens, and now we're joined by Dr. Gina Loudon, president of programming here at Real America's Voice. She's always making an effort to make sure that we are connecting to real Americans across the country and that here on this network, your voice is heard. Dr. Gina, so well good to put. have you on. Thank you. Well, well we, got, we got a good crew out there. We got a fantastic audience. <laughs> That's right. And you're making sure we connect with, with you. them. It's My fun. maiden voyage on your show, so this is cool. It's fun to be with you. It's fantastic. Ah. So you are literally coming straight over from the White House. You yes. just came over. What's what's the latest? Ran over to the White House, uh, took the pulse. Everybody seems to be um, very confident over there. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I'm hearing from the ground. Also had had the privilege to talk to some of the insiders today. I spoke to uh, Hogan Gidley. I spoke to uh, Kimberly. I spoke to Laura Trump today. We'll have a little um, bit from her tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, I think. Sure. But um, so yeah, so I'm I'm hearing great things. The campaign is certainly confident right now. I would say that they seem confident, and it certainly seems like there's a tremendous amount of momentum that's out there. Uh, earlier in the program, we were just talking with Ralph Reed, and he was talking about how people of faith are coming out to vote for this president. They're anticipating in record uh, numbers. Right. Are you getting that same sense of momentum? Uh, absolutely. You know, it almost doesn't matter what poll you look at. Yeah. Um, when you are in towns like, you know, uh, Florida, in, in Wisconsin, or states like Florida or Wisconsin, yeah. some of these swing states where they know they have a fight on their hands, yes. uh, the enthusiasm is so palpable. It's just, you, you can barely walk 
two feet without someone stopping you and just, you know, right. wanting to tell you what they want to tell the president, you yes. know, which is it really an interesting thing. And and you were both in Florida and in Wisconsin. So when you when you're just 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 in the in the past couple of days. So when you say this, I mean, you were on the ground talking to people, getting a sense for what's happening in these swing states. A lot of attention is being focused on Wisconsin, on Michigan. Uh, what's your sense up there in Wisconsin? What are you hearing from voters there and, and, and in Florida? What's interesting in Wisconsin is the, the number of people, the percentage of people that are Trump supporters now that were not Trump supporters in 2016. 2016 yes. And it's because he sent in the National Guard and they feel like he saved their state. Yeah. Um, and those are, you know, and that's combined with what he did in terms of jobs and manufacturing and just sort of bringing back a sense of economic success to a state that felt a little bit forgotten, I think, under Obama. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you've got cities like Milwaukee that are looking at record amounts of violence this year, absolutely record yeah. amounts of violence. It's true of a lot of Democrat-run cities across the country, and the president's come with a very strong message about supporting the police and law and order. I think there's a really sharp, really sharp contrast there. Now, I know you're going to be talking about that just after this show. We want everybody Correct. to stay with us because it's 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central. You've got a special tonight. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, we're doing a little pre-election special. We're going to be talking about what is happening in some of those swing states. So we have some really special guests, some family members of the Trump family that will be uh, joining us at various parts. And uh, so we're going to be just um, taking it all in and doing another temperature check the night before the actual election. So very excited about that. Yeah, and it is, right? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of excitement. This election year feels a little bit different because so many people have voted ahead of time. There's been a lot of energy around early voting, but still, you cannot replace election day. <laughs> I mean, you can't there is still, there's day. so much momentum, and it does come down to who's going to turn out tomorrow. That's exactly right, Governor. And I'll tell you what, when you look at the real tried and true Trump voter, yes. they want to vote. They want to vote in person, and they want to vote on Election Day. So I think you're going to see a massive turnout for the true Trump voter on Tuesday uh, that I don't think I don't I don't think can be paralleled. I don't think can be expected. I think it will be uh, something that will even surprise those who are trying to make these predictions at this point. Well, and I don't, and it's not accounted for in, in a lot of the polls. Uh, definitely not account not accounted for in the books. You just can't account for the kind of motivation that we see when you know when you go to these Trump rallies and you see the lines you know for miles uh, from the people that couldn't get that's, in. You, you just you know it's enthusiasm. It really and it's is energy. Well, folks, that's Dr. Gina Loudon. Stay right here because she's going to come with this fantastic special right after this at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stay right here and and you'll be able to join Dr. Gina. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And 
now let's take a look at one of the stories making headlines today at justthenews.com. You know that from day one, Just the News editor-in-chief John Solomon and the team at Just the News has reported on the business ties between Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and the Ukraine. Well, recent numbers show that in the final hours now before Election Day, most Americans have heard about the allegations and more than half of them are concerned about the reports. You can read about that story at justthenews.com. And if you've been following the show for a while, you know that at the end of each day, we like to leave you with something that we think is pretty cool. And that leads us to this story. Scientists have found a unique asteroid in the solar system in the belt between Mars and Jupiter. And they believe that it could be worth more than the collective economies of our entire planet. To put an actual dollar figure on it, that's 10,000 quadrillion dollars. What makes the asteroid unique is that it could purely be made out of nickel and iron. And NASA is planning in the year 2022 to launch a mission to this asteroid known as Psyche. Uh, Psyche 16. And before we sign off, we want to leave you with a quotation. Uh, this is a great one from Winston Churchill. It says that courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. And here on Actionable Intelligence, we will always aim to speak boldly and also to listen wisely. Stay with us. Dr. Gina Loudon is up next with a pre-election special. And tomorrow night, Real America's Voice is going to have coverage of every single element of the election. Stay right with us. We'll be back soon.